Hello. Hello, Ned. Yep. Yeah, this is Brian Aachen, as you, I guess you can tell because of Skype. I forget that sometimes. Yeah. Also, you sound like the guy on the podcast. <laughs> I'm Brian Aachen, and this is the Python Test Podcast, a podcast about software development, software testing, and Python. I announce new shows on Twitter at Test Podcast, and follow me at Brian Aachen. In this episode, I interview Ned Batchelder. Ned is the maintainer of Coverage.py. Since I'm far from an expert on coverage, I asked Ned to discuss it on the show. I'm also quite a fan of Ned's 2014 PyCon talk, Getting Started Testing, so I definitely asked him about that. We also discuss edX, Python user groups, PyCon talks, and quite a bit more. Show notes can be found at pythontesting.net slash 12 the number one, two. And also like last time I did, I still have the, uh, testpodcast.com. That'll take you right to the podcast page. My discussion with Ned turned out to be about 40 minutes. So I don't want to talk too much more. I want to jump right into the show. Hope you enjoy it. I want to know more about coverage and I want to make sure that we don't miss out on that. So Assuming somebody doesn't have any experience with uh, using coverage or why you would use it, how would how do you describe that to people? So the, the way I describe it is that coverage is a tool that can tell you what parts of your program were run during your test suite. Um, coverage doesn't actually have anything to do particularly with your test suite, but it's mostly the reason people use it is to find out what parts of your code your tests are covering. Uh, so you run your tests under coverage, and it monitors your program and denotes which lines are being, being executed. Uh, and then after the test suite is done running, it can look at your program to decide what lines could have run. And then it subtracts the two to tell you which lines weren't run. And you get a report that tells you these, these lines here were never run by your test suite. Uh, then you can look at those lines and decide how you might write a test that would run those lines. The goal being, of course, that every one of your lines gets run somewhere during your test suite. Because if a line isn't run by your test suite, then it must not have been tested. Coming from C++, one of the differences with Python is the interpreter hasn't even hit it, possibly, then, if, if, your, if your test suite doesn't hit it. And right. so with um, there may even be some uh, yeah, problems. Yeah, it's entirely possible that you've got a file that was never even actually imported. Um, a really, a really uh, poor man's way of doing that kind of coverage is run your whole test suite and see which .py files don't have a .pyc file. Uh, and that's, th that means you really didn't cover that file because it never even got imported. Um, coverage, if you, if you configure coverage.py properly, it can tell you about those kinds of files because during the analysis phase, it can look into the tree of source code and tell you uh, which files could have been imported but never were. Is it common for people to have the HTML output? You know, you know? I don't know. I, I personally really like the HTML output. Um, it was a lot of fun to write. There's a lot of code in coverage.py to support that uh, HTML report. Uh, this may not be the best engineering thing to admit, but there is a handwritten template engine inside of coverage.py just to produce those HTML reports. It's it's pretty cool output. I mean, it's um, it's very graphical, and I, th I think it's slick. Um, Thanks. I can't wait to. Yeah, try I'm it actually out more. working uh, today on improvements to it. There's one thing that that 
people don't understand, that's hard to understand, which is when you're doing branch coverage, when it colors a line yellow to tell you that the line was only partially covered, it tries to give you an indication of what aspect of that line didn't execute, and it's really hard to describe that in a way that that uh, developers understand. It's really easy to describe it in a way that the code analysis can tell you, but that's not what people actually want to read. So I'm trying to come up with better ways of describing what didn't happen. Yeah, that, I mean, there's, I mean, it's an interesting thing that to just try to expand people's understanding of what coverage means. Um, yes, branch coverage different than code or line coverage. Exactly. And then my focus, since I'm usually focused on uh, uh, functional tests or system level tests, is um, is behavior coverage, and that's a little bit harder to um, to visualize, I guess, in a with an automated tool. I don't even know if it would be possible. I'm not sure what you mean by behavior coverage. Um, well, like uh, for instance, if you um, let's say you hit all the lines of the code, but you uh, uh, I guess this is kind of hard to describe, but the the state of the system can be in many different states when you hit a, when a user exercises a, a functionality, right? It, and making sure that you exercise that from all of the uh, all of the sets of states that make sense. Yeah, so I've been I've been thinking for years about the problem of what in my mind I was thinking of as data coverage. So if you've got a f- function that computes the square root of numbers, you can easily do 100% coverage of that function and never have actually tried calling it with a negative number. And so there's this this question of not only which of the lines in the code have been executed, but which of the possible values that the function could have accepted have you tested with. And, and that's one of the, the problems with code coverage as a measurement, which is there's lots of ways that you can get to 100% line or branch coverage and still have really bad tests or still have missed really important cases in your test suite. Um, just because if, if a line isn't run by your test suite, you know it isn't tested. But if a line is run by your test suite, you still don't know if it's properly tested. Right, and the, the, um, a, a floating point uh, or a, a real number input is a good example because there's essentially infinite numbers that can go into it. Well, not really infinite with a computer, but, but yeah, pretty large number. Pretty large number. Um, but there are interesting sets within that range that um, you know that that you can you know if you're one of the designers or one of the engineers, you know that there's specific ones that are interesting. Right. Um, so in like in the um, I always bring it back to hardware, but in a in the case where I've got attenuators, it's the it's the part where I where I hit attenuator clicks. I need to test around those. And from the outside world, you never know where those points are. So hmm. I have no idea what you're talking about, but that sounds pretty <laughs> hard to test. Um, no, it's it's not bad. It's I think of it sort of like gray box, and I, I think within within software pure software systems, it's similar. There's um, with the uh, API of an of uh, of a system doesn't necessarily tell you the interesting parts, the points where the system might break. Right, and um, Python being dynamically typed is even harder because you may have written a function that works great on all the strings you've passed it, but you've never actually passed it a Unicode string. And turns out, if you instead of passing it a byte string, you pass it a Unicode string, it behaves differently. Or if you pass it something completely other than a string. Yeah, exactly. And and sometimes you intend for your API to work that way, and sometimes you didn't even think of it. So how did you come to be the owner of coverage? 
yeah, so that's an interesting story. So lots of people just assumed that I wrote Coverage.py, and I didn't. Coverage.py was actually written uh, in 2000 or 2001 by a fellow named Gareth Reese. And I was working on a different project, and I wanted to write tests for it. And I wanted to know how the tests were doing, so I wanted to do some coverage measurement of them, and I found coverage.py. And I thought, great, this is exactly what I want. But it it was missing missing some things I wanted. In particular, it would tell me that my doc strings weren't covered because doc strings in Python code are actual expression statements with a string value, and so they are, they are in the bytecode as a statement that gets executed uh, I mean, they're not, sorry, they're not in the bytecode as a statement that gets executed, but when you analyze the code, you find it as a statement that could have been executed or something. I forget the exact details. In any case, when I found coverage.py, it was great, except that it was constantly telling me that my doc strings weren't covered. And so I was stuck between, well, do I just ignore that information from coverage.py because um, I know better? Or do I leave out doc strings so it won't complain to me? Those didn't seem like great choices, right? Neither one of them is good. The better choice would be let's improve coverage.py so that it understands about doc strings. So that was the first change I made to it. And I wrote to Gareth and said, look, I made this improvement to coverage.py and I didn't hear back. And I wrote again and I didn't hear back. And after a while, I figured, well, I guess he's not interested anymore. So I'll just put my version of coverage.py out there. And that was 11 years ago. And I've done a lot of work to it since then. Let's have you. Um have you ever actually gotten a hold of him or heard from him? You know, he's back. He, he, he has been online again. I see him now writing about other things. I guess he's just not interested in coverage.py. I've, I've written to him a few times saying, you know, I hope you don't feel bad about this. And I'm trying to make it very clear. Uh, for instance, if you look at the author's file, it says it was written by Gareth Reese with major improvements by Ned Batchelder. So after all this time, I still credit Gareth as the author of coverage.py and I am now the maintainer of it. Okay. That's been quite a few years though, right? 11 years you said? 11 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How much time do you spend maintaining it? Is this a big part of your side stuff or just something? Yeah, it, it is a big part. I, I've never actually measured how much time I spend on it, but uh, when I have uh, cycles to devote to hacking on code, it's most likely to go into coverage.py. And that's because, one, it's it's a programming problem that really interests me. Uh, developer tools are fascinating because they have to be able to analyze code, but they're also exactly the kind of thing I as a developer want to have. Tools that can tell me things I didn't know about my own code I think are really, really valuable, in addition to being an in- interesting engineering challenge to build. And because coverage.py has been widely adopted by people, I get lots of good feedback from people. You know, hey, thanks for coverage.py, and that makes me feel good and makes it feel worthwhile to put more effort into it. Well, I know that you probably have already heard lots of thank yous, but um, yeah, I'd like to put a collective thank you out there um, because even though I'm new to it, I'm grateful that it's there and I look forward to trying it out a little bit more. But Great, also, thanks. I. I know that tons of people rely on it. I mean, if if there's, that's like one of the first things anybody ever writes a plugin for is to make sure coverage works with something. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, knows, you know, unit test knows and PyTest all support it. Right. So, well, I'm not sure unit test has plugins yet 
or maybe oh, unit right. test two does, but the standard library doesn't. I'm not sure. Oh, but you but you can run unit tests with coverage. Yeah. So what? Well, what I recommend to most people is instead of having your test runner invoke coverage, you use coverage to invoke the test runner. And and there's two reasons. Yeah, there's two reasons that I say that. One is um, there's a problem with the plugins for coverage, which is that their UI is going to lag behind coverage's UI. So if I add a new feature to coverage.py, chances are really good that it's going to be a little while before you can invoke that feature directly through your plugin. That makes sense. Uh, in fact, the, the reason I originally added the support for .coverageRC files to be able to configure coverage's behavior through a text file rather than through the command line was because I was frustrated that I was adding features and the plugins weren't giving people access to them. So I could just do an end run around the plugin by letting you put it all into a coverage RC file. But the other reason I recommend using coverage to run the test runner is that that guarantees that the coverage measurement has begun when your program starts running. There's a common problem in the Django world. Django has its own test runner, uh, but you can also use Nose to, to run Django tests. And there's a Django Nose plugin that knows how to properly configure Django support with Nose. And if you use Nose with the Django Nose plugin with the coverage plugin for Nose, the Django Nose plugin has imported all of your files to find all of your Django models to properly configure the test suite before it ever starts running coverage, which means you get all these import and function definition lines marked as not run, which is obviously impossible. How can the body of a function have executed if the definition of the function wasn't executed. But the problem is that all this work has happened before coverage has even started. So coverage doesn't notice that those lines got executed. So by, by running using coverage to run the test runner, you know that coverage is going to start measuring things and, and capture all of the behavior of your program. Okay, so there, and um, yeah, there's abilities for PyTest or Django to run PyTest versions as well. Uh, but yeah, the, and, and I haven't heard about it being a problem with PyTest, so it might simply be a matter of in what order the plugins run. Okay. So is there is there a um, um, a link that you can send me or something that that, that with um, or is it in your coverage documentation on how to run, say the Django test test from from coverage? Uh, that's a good question. So I guess I've never actually said. Specifically, here's how you use coverage to run nose instead of using nose to run coverage. Although there are probably examples out there. I mean, it's a simple, pretty thing, a pretty simple thing. What I've tried to do is make the coverage run command line be the same as the Python command line. So if you would normally say Python foo.py, instead you can use coverage run foo.py. And if normally you'd say Python dash m foo, instead you can say coverage run dash m foo. Okay, well, that's that's all. that. I think you've just covered it right there. Then okay, great, <laughs> awesome. Um, so that's a. I'm assuming this is a side project. You're not getting paid to do this. I am not getting paid to do this. So, so what do you do during your day job, or do you have a day job? I do have a day job. So I work for an organization called EdX, which uh, is a nonprofit that was founded by Harvard and MIT to put university courses online. Uh, it's all open source Python Django code, which is an aspect of it that I really love. And we've, at this point, our website has close to a thousand courses on it from a hundred different institutions. 
and the software is also being used by about 200 other online learning sites to deliver education over the internet, which is a really exciting thing for people to be broadening how education can get out in the world. And the thing that I do at edX in particular is I'm a member of the open source enablement team there. So my job is to encourage and enable uh, people to use our software as open source and to adopt it to do their own online education, which is really exciting. That is cool. So is it, is it, what does that run in? Is that a, a Ruby thing or? Do you no, know no, it's you... all Python and Django. Oh, okay. I doubt I would ever get employed by a Ruby shop. <laughs> well, um, so like for instance, um, uh, is it appropriate for small things? Like, like if I were going to offer like a, a core, like a short course on a, just a personal website, uh, or something, is that something I could use edX for or? It's, is it more for larger institutions? Yeah, it's a little involved for for single courses. You could do it depending on your skill set. Okay. Uh, but it is it is a fairly large application that involves a couple of different Django and or other servers. We we encourage people to try it out by using some vagrant VirtualBox images that we provide. So do you, wh- who are the types of uh customers that you're interacting with most? Is it um, universities or community colleges or something like that? Or Well, the, the design center is mostly universities, but we have a lot of other uh, people trying to do online education. There's a barbecue restaurant chain of about a dozen stores that's doing the kinds of education you typically need to do for store managers and employees. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, you know, sanitation and ADA compliance and how to manage your employees and that kind of stuff. Uh, we have some religious institutions that are doing uh, confirmation education. Uh, the Hare Krishnas have uh, some temple administration courses on a website that they run. So there's uh, a lot of people doing online education and trying it out. The design, I mean, it's not the design center, but what we use it for at work on our own website is university courses. So it's a really natural fit there. Uh, you know, once you see Harvard and MIT and Berkeley and Stanford putting courses online using the same piece of software, it's a it's an easy thing to convince universities that this is a good way to go. So, if if people like restaurants and stuff are using it, and and so then is there is there a back end or something where like a manager can tell whether or not somebody actually did the course? Or that's that- a good question. Uh, so yeah, you can, there is an instructor dashboard that lets you see the progress that students are making. Okay. Uh, Our design center is mostly for, for what we call MOOCs, massively open online courses. So we have courses that will have up to 50,000 students in them. So you wouldn't want to look at a student roster of 50,000 students, but I think we're also doing a good job for on-campus education, uh, where you would want to have that kind of personal connection to students where you want to know how specific students are doing. Yeah. Or you, you get run a restaurant and you really want to know whether or not your people know how to wash their hands. <laughs> That's right. That's right. My own technical work on the platform tends to be at much lower levels uh, in the code. Uh, at work, I tend to be the, the go-to guy with the thorny Python questions or the Python ecosystem questions. You know, Hey, Pip is acting weird. What can we do to make it do the right thing? Those sorts of things. So I don't, tends to be have a chance to work up at sort of the user interface feature level of things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's at work um regardless of my python experience the most common question i get is 
How do I get Pip to work behind the firewall? Ah, uh, yeah. Luckily, we don't have a firewall, so I'd, I've never had to deal with that. But yeah. Um, so we talked about coverage. Talked about uh, edX. That's pretty cool. Have you? Have you, how long have you been doing that? That's been a little over three years now. Okay, you still having fun with it? Oh yeah, I really, I really like the open source nature of it and the nonprofit giving away education aspect of it. It's a very noble endeavor. When I worked for Hewlett Packard, I was in the ink division, trying to figure out how to get websites to be more printable so that people would print more of them so that we would sell more ink. <laughs> and that's a very different goal. That's very believable. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, but you, you've been, I mean, you've been given out free information for quite a long time. Personally, I have. Yeah, I've been running a blog since 2002 and I do PyCon talks when they accept my talks. And I really like being able to explain things. I like being able to help people, you know, up the skill curve so that they can build cool things. Yeah. So when I, when I first, I actually, that was one of my uh, first long posts I read of yours is, is the write up that you did for the getting started testing for the 2014 talk. Right. Um, which is um, my, you know, I skimmed it at first and my, my first reaction was, it's not quite the material that I need to give the people that work for me. Um, right. But because you're not testing Python code. Well, no, but most of the problems are the same problems. I see. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, um, but I read it again or I listened to it yesterday again, and it's really kind of an incredible um, introduction to a lot of testing concepts in like 20 minutes. I can't believe that you fit that much information in like 20 minutes. I grew up in New York City, so I can talk really fast. But it, it didn't seem fast. I mean, you, I mean, you hey, covered good. some of the basics of uh, unit test and, um, and then pushed, um, you know, talked about both the benefits and the downfalls of uh, mocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm really glad to hear you say that because the, my goal with that talk was to demystify some of the idiosyncrasies of writing tests. And, you know, when you first come to, especially unit test, PyTest is a little bit more natural, but when you first get to unit test, it all looks very strange because in some ways it is very strange. And people's first reaction to writing tests is to have a long sequence of functions that all depend on each other function calls that all depend on each other and you, you, know, you use the last result for your next test and so on and so forth. And I wanted to try to explain why you didn't want to do it that way and why when you approach testing in the ways that you're going to want to have approached it once you know what you're doing, why the test frameworks are set up the way they are because they're designed to help you do that the right way from the beginning. Yeah, you did have some pointers that off to a fixtures package. Mm-hmm. Which actually understanding PyTest before I came to unit test, I'm still confused by this. It looks like a bunch of stuff that's already built into PyTest. Well, PyTest, yeah, PyTest is very, very full featured. Uh, so I think if you start in the unit test world, you're going to be using three or four extra libraries on top of it to get to the kinds of functionality that PyTest has. And, and the interesting thing for me is that I was never a user of PyTest. I sort of started with unit test and just stuck with it. Uh, but just recently at work, I, I took over ownership of a piece of code that was using PyTest for its tests. And 
that sort of forced me to finally really look at it as a user rather than just knowing enough to be able to help someone on IRC or something. And I understand much more about how PyTest thinks about the world. And I see now that the things that looked like really strange magic to me aren't stranger magic than unit tests. They're just different magic than unit test. Definitely. And, and at Boston Python, which is the local Python user group here in Boston that I help organize, I just recently regave that unit test, uh, the getting started testing talk. And for to prepare for that talk, I actually switched the first half of the talk from unit test to PyTest. And I did that partly because I wanted to really understand more about PyTest, but also because I thought that PyTest is a little bit easier to explain to people. There's a little bit less strangeness in PyTest. Um, when you first use PyTest, until you get to fixtures, it doesn't really feel like magic. When you have to explain how it is that I write a function called setup database, and then I have an argument somewhere called setup database, and PyTest connects those two automatically, which isn't a Python thing, that's just a PyTest thing, that's where it starts to feel like magic. Whereas with unit test, you can't even write your first test until you explain, well, you have to write a class, and the class has to have a method in it, and don't worry about why it's a class yet. You know, so you're sort of hand waving over magic before you can even get to seeing anything happen. Yeah, and that that's actually the part where it tripped. Um, it I see a lot of people getting tripped up with unit tests using classes because um, we've got a, a, a lot of the people I work with are are uh, uh, electrical engineers that learned programming later, and um, they use Python as a scripting sort of language, so they don't use classes within it, even though they really are using classes everywhere, but they don't realize right. it. They're uh, not writing their own classes, at least. Yeah, they're not writing their own classes. And, and even if they do, I mean, a unit test class isn't really like a class. I mean, it's, right. it's more it of really a, isn't. it's more of a collection of tests. Yes. And the, that sort of mind shift is, was I saw I as difficult for some people on my team. So I'm, I mean, on on my team, we've gone um, intentionally towards uh, functional tests or you know function tests instead of uh, class based tests because of that hiccup. It just wasn't worth trying to teach people about it. Right, and the, and there's a good reason why it's really weird in Python, and that's because that whole design pattern of a class containing test methods came from JUnit. And it's that way in JUnit in Java, because in Java, the only way you have of grouping functions together is in a class. In fact, the only way you have of writing functions is to have them in a class of some sort. There's no such thing as a function outside of a class in Java. So everything is a class in Java. So of course your test case is a class in Java. And then when that code was, or that design was ported over to Python, sort of, I don't mean, I mean, this word sounds kind of negative, but it was sort of mindlessly ported over, just let's use the exact same pattern from Java in Python. Now, why is there a class? Well, there, there's no good reason for that to be a class. It's a class because it was in a class in Java where it had to be a class. So, of course, it seems very unnatural in the Python world. There are some advantages to having a class for unit test uh, test cases. You know, you can have attributes on the object and your setup can create things and set them on the object, and that can seem a little bit less magic than the way, for instance, PyTest associates fixtures with functions, but it still is kind of unnatural. I don't know if I've met anybody, well, I know there's a new generation of people coming through school that have, are introduced to Python first, um, but um, everybody, I think, probably 
I don't know, 30 or older, um, mm -hmm. probably came to Python after they learned some other language. So right. all, all the Java people probably are like, it's no big deal. Um, so, and yeah, but they get, they get upset when you tell them, well, you don't need a class for that. And they, they're a little bit at sea without their, a class to surround everything. So it's a different mindset. Every language has its own, its own strengths and weaknesses and, and, the grain of the wood goes in different direction and leads your design in different places, as well as just the culture of the programmers who are around you. It is interesting this, to see. Well, that's one of the, th the one of the things that I love about having like talks like yours and um, the, all the different, the, some of the different podcasts that are coming up and different resources to, to help people out because you can't assume anybody's education, even if they have like a degree in something, you can't assume how much they know about anything because stuff is changing so so fast. Right. So, right. And and in, in object oriented programming, um, Python of course has inheritance, but these days lots of people are very down on the idea of inheritance between classes, and are encouraging people to use composition instead. And I'm still a bit old school. I haven't quite wrapped my head around that idea, uh, but I'm trying to keep it at top of mind as I design things to see if I can get a better intuitive feel for what those people who are ahead of me on that curve would do in that situation. I'm, I'm kind of treating that like uh, sugar and caffeine um, moderation. It's fine. If mm -hmm. you go too much in any extreme in one direction or the other, I'm unhappy. So yeah, that's probably wise. So you, so you brought up the Boston uh, Python group. Now, did yeah. you, did you start that or again, I didn't start it. Okay. It might be that I don't ever start anything. I just take, <laughs> I just adopt things that I find. No, I didn't start it. I joined that group maybe 10 years ago. I think I found an email about announcing an event from 2006, but maybe even earlier than that. It's been going for a very long time. Um, I took over the leadership of that group maybe six years ago, I think. And we've been running it pretty consistently since then. It got a really big boost when Jessica McKellar was living in Boston, and she was very energetic and created an, a couple of new kinds of events for us to run that really increased our gender diversity and therefore also just our population of members. So we're creeping up on 6,000 members at this point um, on the mailing list. Wow. And we run events generally twice a month, and we get between 100 and 150 people at each event. So it's a, it's a really vibrant group. Um, if anyone listening is ever visiting Boston, drop me a line, and uh, I'll try and get you in front of 100 interested Pythonistas if you have something to tell them. That's cool. I'll, I'll have to try to come up with a reason to visit Boston. Maybe the snow. We have snow. <laughs> we had snow. We had snow uh, one day this year. Okay, good. <laughs> And it, luckily, it was on a school day, so the kids got to take it off and yeah. sled in the side side of the house. So, um, the uh, uh, I I feel how much time do you spend on the? I mean, I, I keep thinking asking time questions. I apologize. I know, but yeah, does the Boston Python thing take a lot of your time? Or so, but it's a little harder to think about how much time it takes to organize the user group because it comes in very very small slices. So I'll get emails during the day from people who are interested in sponsoring. I'll be uh, trying to control people into speaking. I'll be trying to figure out if someone who proposes a talk is capable of giving a good talk. 
and what should I do about it if I think maybe they're not quite ready to give a good talk? Be thinking about, well, when do we have to schedule more space for the upcoming meetups, things like that. So there's a lot of, you know, during the typical day, I probably will send out, I'll answer maybe three or four emails about it. You know, and, and questions from members about, hey, you know, the event looks full. Should I do this? What should I do? Is it really still on for Monday? Whatever, those kinds of things. So the, the amount of time that I spend on Boston Python isn't a lot. I mean, the majority of the time I spend on it is actually at the events. So it's four hours every month at events, maybe I guess six hours if you count drinks afterwards, those kinds of things. Okay. Uh, but but it is there is sort of an ongoing drip of got to make sure I'm on top of that thing to make sure the events keep happening. There's there's that style, and and in the back of my mind is always the question of should we be doing more? You know we've got six thousand people. What can we what can we do with six thousand people? Yeah. Well, I'm I've uh, I feel I have like this guilt over. Um, I've been on the mailing list for the Portland uh, Python group yep. for, for about a year and a half. And I haven't attended one thing yet. So really, um, yeah, that's pretty bad. Uh, my wife and the February one, I'm going to be out of the country um, when on that meetup. So maybe March. My wife's saying we have to make it a priority because she's she's pretty encouraging to get me to do more things. So oh, good. I'll have to go meet the Portland people. Um, well, and we're all going to be descending on you at the end of May. Yeah, are you gonna are you gonna come to PyCon then? I, I am coming to PyCon, of course. It's going to be my 10th PyCon, and I just found out yesterday that my talk proposal was accepted, so I'll be doing a talk at PyCon this year again. That's great. Awesome. I'll have to go. Yeah, well, we'll go see. Listen. We'll see how the talk comes out. This one's going to be a little bit scattered. The topic is machete mode debugging, uh, which is really based on three or four blog posts from my blog. I went and called the archives to find some things that would be interesting to try to put together into a pedagogically coherent way, and we'll see how it comes out. It might be a challenge to to make it seem like a thing. Machete. I'll have to go like look at those. So machete mode. Machete mode debugging. So. Yeah, I don't. It's not those blog posts aren't called that, so it might be a little bit hard to figure out which ones I'm talking about. But you can see me in Pike at PyCon in Portland. Yeah, I'll have to. I'll definitely have to um, try to try to meet up with you sometime. Yeah, I also feel bad. I haven't bought my tickets yet. I'm going to have to get those before they sell out. They do sell out. I, I did. I submitted three talks. Unfortunately, I just found out yesterday that neither none of them have. Uh, were accepted, but oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But it was um, it was kind of a good experience, even just to try to put together what I thought I could present in a half an hour. Mm-hmm. Actually, to truthfully, I'm a little relieved because I think I I think I actually presented what should have been hour and a half talks uh, mm. and claimed that I could get through them in half an hour. So, yeah, that's a very tricky thing. I I really like doing PyCon talks because they are a chance to truly understand something. So do you, do you um do you, if you're going to do this talk for instance are you going to give it to your Boston meetup beforehand as practice or Yeah we do we try to get all of the Boston area speakers in front of an audience uh locally before PyCon and we've already scheduled I think four events through April and May to to have room for all of them we have of course I have no idea how many Boston area speakers have had talks accepted but based on past years you know, if we have room for a dozen speakers, then we'll probably be okay. So we'll see. But yeah, those are always very well attended events, and they're really a good chance for speakers to really try out their talks ahead of time. And at the very least, what it means is that rather than procrastinating right up 
to PyCon and making your talk at the last minute, you procrastinate up until the rehearsal and make your talk at the last minute. (laughs) And then you've got at least another week before PyCon. So you have a chance to maybe not really ruin your time at PyCon with stress. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it works out really well. I am assuming that's a good recommendation for anybody that giving a Python or a PyCon talk to uh, practice it in front of the local group first. Absolutely, so. practice it. Um, yeah. I the, if you if you go online and see what people recommend about how to prepare for a talk, they always say to rehearse it, and they talk about like doing it in front of a mirror, which I have never been able to do because it's completely artificial, and there's no way you're going to actually do a realistic job of trying to give your talk in front of a mirror. It can be helpful to see how it sounds coming out and whether you can, if there's something you're stumbling over. Um, I remember when one of my first PyCon talks was about writing C extensions. And at the time I was driving from Boston to Marlboro, I was working for Hewlett Packard and that was a 45 minute drive. And I remember at the time there was some particular part of the talk that I was finding difficult to explain and driving down the mass turnpike repeating over and over to myself just in my car saying it over and over how do i say this how do i say this how do i say this and that was very helpful but there's really no substitute for being in front of a live audience and hearing people's reactions and really being on the spot to explain it to a person right then and that really helps you find where in your talk are the the gaps or the rough spots or the places where just hearing the questions at the end people will ask you a question you'll realize oh yeah i completely forgot to say whatever it is you forgot to say and then you can put it into your talk for the real PyCon presentation well that's um that's, i think that's good advice uh, i'm going to take it at least um and uh try to do some practice talks and uh shoot again for uh, next year's uh yep. PyCon. so we we have it for two years here i'm sorry i didn't get to go to montreal but yeah, PyCon, PyCon has done the, the, had the good idea of always having it in two years in a row in the same place so that the logistics can be leveraged across two years. I think it's a good idea. Yeah, it works out well. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, talking with me. Is there anything I didn't cover that you'd like to talk about? Uh, no, I'm really excited about the Python community in general and by blog posts and podcasts and individual efforts like yours to just add a little bit more energy into the world. I, I am a big fan of grassroots, decentralized things happening. And the fact that the internet lets us make a little radio show like this and put it out there and see where it goes, I think is just amazing. I, I think so too. I, one of the things I realized was I wasn't reading as many blog posts as I wanted to because of time constraints, but I listened to, I'm, I'm always in, in, want for more technical podcasts. So I'm, I, I put myself where I, I wanted to be and try to add to that. So you're doing a good job. Well, thanks. Um, yeah. So I, I paid you to say that, but we won't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> um, no, that's it. So uh, thanks. Thanks a ton for coming on. What's the best way to, for people to uh, find out more about you or anything that you work on? Well, so I've got a website at nedbatchelder.com. Uh, if you go into Google and Google for Python and Ned together. Probably something I wrote will come up in the top 10 listings there. Uh, I hang out in the Python IRC channel on Freenode. My nick there is Ned Bat, uh, the first three letters of my first and last names. And I'm always happy to talk to people about whatever. It's, it's, it's interesting to me to see what people need more explanation about. My PyCon talks tend to focus on things that 
interest me because people are asking about them. So I don't mind getting questions. I can't guarantee that I'll be able to debug deep problems, but I'm always interested to hear how people are struggling with getting up the learning curve. Today's episode is brought to you by listeners like you supporting the show through Patreon. Super special thank you to Jordan for signing up at the $5 per episode level. Jordan also had some nice things to say on Twitter. Here's a quote. Just discovered pythontesting.net. Thank you. The how and why of testing is so rarely covered so extensively. Great work. Well, thank you, Jordan. And also thanks to Cosimo and Robbie for signing up. Show notes can be found at testpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.